Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. The Food and Drug Administration recently issued an emergency use authorization for doctors to take blood plasma from patients who have recovered from COVID-19 and use it as a therapy for patients who are sick enough with the disease right now that they find themselves in the hospital. While announcing this authorization, the FDA commissioner, Stephen Hahn, said that 35 out of 100 of COVID-19 patients, quote, would have been saved because of the administration of plasma, close quote. This led to an outcry from scientists pointing out that this statement vastly overstated the treatment benefits, criticism that Hahn later said was in fact justified. So what do we actually know about convalescent plasma as a treatment for COVID-19? And perhaps more important, what does the mess of politicization around this emergency use authorization tell us about what might happen in the future if and when the Trump administration seeks to use an emergency use authorization to introduce a vaccine? Here to discuss these hugely important issues with us is Dr. Walid Jalad. Dr. Jalad is an assistant professor of medicine and health policy at the University of Pittsburgh, where he leads the Center for Pharmaceutical Policy and Prescribing. He has been a frequent and astute commentator on treatment, statistics, and reality. Waleed, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Today, we're going to start with convalescent plasma therapy. And although we're going to talk, I think, at some length about what is not true of convalescent plasma therapy. Let's start with what is true of convalescent plasma therapy. In your view, reading the data that has been made publicly available, what can plausibly be claimed for this therapy in terms of the effects that it could have on people who are ill with COVID-19? 
there are different ways to think about this, I think. So one, I think the claim can be made as it was made in the emergency use authorization, which is why the EUA is interesting. And the claim is simply that the totality of the evidence says that it's probably going to help people. And I actually think it is fair to say that. And that's pretty much a low bar for what you need to determine if something is going to be authorized by the FDA. But I think the totality of evidence based on what we've seen in animals, in what was in a small randomized trial, and in some of these observational data that was seen from the Mayo Clinic is that it probably helps to some extent. And that's, that's really all you can say. Probably helps to some extent is, as you say, a pretty low bar to reach. Does that include also the question of whether it could potentially do any harm? Yeah, I think that it has a lot of data. Actually, it's been used by 70,000 people at this point, and there's a lot of safety data at that point. That's a lot of people to use it. And there's known problems with when people receive transfusions of blood or plasma, that there are known side effects. And they're pretty typical, I think, for what people know about plasma. So I think one of the reasons why both hydroxychloroquine and convalescent plasma met this bar for the emergency use authorization was in part because the data on side effects is pretty well known. At least they've been used in other settings. And so there's not a lot of concern about safety other than the known side effects of plasma, actually. Well, that's the good news. But you also just mentioned in the same sentence as hydroxychloroquine, which turned out on closer examination of the data not to have positive therapeutic effects. What is the aspect of the data that makes you think that that is not true of convalescent plasma therapy, that in fact there are reasons uh, in the data. Is it that small n RCT, randomized control trial, or is it more to do with the observational data on the 70,000 people who have been treated this way? Yeah, you know, it's sometimes I, I sit back, and this is not the way to judge science, but I'd say based on what I've seen, if I or a family member had COVID, would I want them to receive plasma? And the answer is yes. So I must have some sense that it works. But it is partly from the small randomized trial. It is partly from what you see in the data, which although there's no control group, which is the huge problem, there are some signs that it would work. You cannot know for sure until you do the randomized trial. That's why um, this is an authorization and not approval. And, And there's a clear distinction between approval and authorization and to authorize it in the setting of a public health emergency with no other treatment you just have to think that it's probably going to work and have enough evidence that someone at FDA is going to say that it probably works. That's a hugely important point that you're making there, Walid, and I just want to pause and emphasize it. Emergency use authorization is its own category, and it's different from FDA approval. FDA approval has higher standards for whether a treatment is approved, and that includes real statistical presumably RCT, randomized controlled trial, proof that it actually is working. Whereas emergency use authorization simply consists of the statement that there's more reason to believe than not that it's helping. Is that a fair distinction between the two? Yes, that there's reason to believe that the benefits outweigh the risks. And approval, a full approval, regular FDA approval, typically requires a randomized trial. So yeah, that is a key issue with emergency use authorizations. The bar is lower. It's very different than FDA approval. And the other thing that's really interesting about emergency use authorizations is one of the criteria is that there is no other approved therapy to treat the disease. And what's interesting is that it's approved therapy. 
So even though remdesivir is the antiviral that is authorized also under the emergency use authorization, there is still no approved therapy. So as long as nothing is approved, they can actually still authorize what they need to because there is no approved therapy. While we're on the topic of emergency use authorization, let me ask you a question that I've been asked repeatedly by other lay people and I have declined to answer because I don't know, but I bet you do know. When the time comes to try out for the public some of the vaccines that are being tested right now for SARS-CoV-2, is it conceivable that the FDA would do emergency use authorizations for the vaccines rather than issue full approvals? Because that would lower the standard of uh, proof that needed to be met and would also presumably speed up the process. Yes. The answer is yes. And this is what I tell people is this is the most people could care less about convalescent plasma. Most people will never get it because it's given to hospitalized patients. The reason why it matters so much is because of exactly what you mentioned, which is everybody is really concerned about what this means for the vaccine. The answer is yes, that a vaccine can, and in my view and others, likely will be authorized by the FDA through the same mechanism soon, actually, uh, in terms of months. And there's a lot of debate about that. Well, good, because that's where we're headed. In order to get there, I think we first need to turn to the very troubling way, at least to my mind, that the announcement about the convalescent plasma therapy was made in a dramatic, uh, you know, president of the United States participating press conference with statistics cited that, as far as I can make out, were just not substantiated, namely that the treatment had reduced deaths by 35%, which is something that the president said, the secretary of HHS said, and then perhaps most disturbingly, the commissioner of the FDA said. Talk to us about what happened there? Where did this 35% number come from if you have a theory about where and why was it wrong if indeed you believe it was wrong? Yeah, yeah. this is one of the most astounding things that happened. And I've tried to make a very clear distinction personally between whether I agree with an emergency use authorization and whether I agree with how it was delivered or how it was announced, which I do not. So that latter part, that was just unprecedented where you had such huge errors made in how the FDA talks about data for products that it's authorized. It doesn't do those mistakes. If you read the decisional memo that the FDA puts together when they actually write, the FDA staff write all the reasons why it should be authorized, all the data, they make their decision. It's actually very detailed, very nuanced, but that is not what we heard at the press conference. That is also why people are so attuned to this issue of convalescent plasma because we need the FDA to be telling us what is correct and saying it correctly and not misinforming the public, which is what they did here. So it's important to talk about that. So a couple of things, this 35 out of 100 issue. So the, the data supporting an emergency use authorization for convalescent plasma did not come from a randomized trial. So it is very difficult to make conclusions about whether any therapy actually reduced mortality because there was no control arm. There was no arm that got nothing. So you really shouldn't say that there's good evidence that anything reduces mortality. What is there in terms of data? There are data that shows if you look at a subgroup, a subgroup of individuals, and you compare those who got more antibodies in their plasma with those who got fewer antibodies, 
there is a reduction in mortality, that the people who had more antibodies in their plasma, which conceivably should have more of an effect in reducing the severity of disease, they actually had less mortality than the people that had lower titers of antibody. And that the people who got the therapy earlier, when theoretically it should work better, had lower mortality than those who got it later. Still, we cannot be certain. You, you cannot go in front of the American public and say that this therapy reduces mortality when there's that possibility that it might not. And the audience that's listening does not understand all these nuances we've talking about, about the bar, emergency use authorization, randomized trials necessarily. So that is a key issue. Here's a question. If the head of the FDA or the head of HHS or the president for that matter had not said this reduces mortality, but had said, we have reason to think that it might reduce mortality. Would that have made you less upset? Would that have satisfied you? Is this a question of the clarity of the claim? Yes. So that's the thing is that the FDA had no reason to try and inflate the claim. The data as as they stand are enough to say, we're going to authorize it. We believe that in the case of an emergency, people are dying. We want to get this to you. All of that is reasonable. The, the problem was is going and saying that it reduces mortality when we don't know that you know, even the bigger problem was saying that 35 out of 100 people will survive if they get the therapy. That is just nowhere near correct. That's just flat out false as far as I can make out. It's false. So not only was the certainty about the mortality benefit misstated, but the actual magnitude of that was misstated. We'll be right back. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, N.A. member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. 
OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Let's turn now from what happened in this rollout to its implications for the really massive question of what's going to happen for vaccines. What consequences do you think this, to a certain degree, botched emergency use authorization rollout for the convalescent plasma has for the question of how much the public can, should, or will trust a potential emergency use authorization for vaccines? Yeah. One of the real problems we've had in the public health approach or the, the, has been the politicization of the entire thing. The problem with what happened here is that it just gave an opening to even more politicization, even more criticizing. So the, it was the same thing with hydroxychloroquine. There was huge criticism of the FDA from one side, huge applauding from the other side. And you have these two sides that are just completely different, saying completely different things. You know, one saying it's the best thing ever, one saying it's the worst thing ever. And what happened here was just yet another opportunity for that to happen. Instead of having a message that is clear, that is correct, that is not overhyping things, it just contributed to the hype on one side about the benefit. And so then the other side started a pile on the FDA. So that's part of the problem is that it's just adding to the politicization of public health. So what happens is it just leads to further distrust and you don't know who to trust. And so I think people end up just going to listen to who they trust, um, which is a problem. So all of this is leading up to this issue about what's going to happen when the FDA announces, when there's a press conference um, at the end of October and the president announces and the head of the FDA, the head of the CDC is there and they announce that they have authorized a vaccine and they say that the vaccine is safe and effective. Ideally, we'd want the public to say the president, the head of the CDC, the head of the FDA are telling us the vaccine is safe and effective. Great. We can all celebrate. The problem is, is that that's not what's going to happen. And that's going to make this issue of vaccine so dicey. How are scientists going to respond about the vaccine when there's going to be nuanced data on safety and efficacy? What we don't want is scientists going out and saying this vaccine is not safe when they want people to take other vaccines and the public will not get the nuance. That's the larger issue for me is this issue about polarization of science and public health, distrust, mistrust, confusion, and what that means for the vaccine, which is really the way that we're going to finish with this whole COVID thing and be able to get back to normal. You've kind of blown my mind in what you just said. So I want to walk through your scenario, which let's call the October surprise, which to you is not going to be such a surprise. You pick the end of October, I presume, not solely because you think that by then we'll have enough preliminary data to make some kind of a initial judgment about the vaccines, but rather because it's proximate to the beginning of November. And then the president wants to be reelected. 
So if I'm right about that, what you're picturing is a nationally televised press conference. The president's going to get up there and sort of like do his version of Barack Obama, you know, ladies and gentlemen, we got him. He's going to go up there and he's going to say in your scenario, ladies and gentlemen, we cured it. All problems solved. So first of all, is that indeed something like the October surprise scenario that you're describing? Let me make sure I'm hearing you correctly. That is like the October surprise that I'm talking about. But the reason why I say late October is because there is already a meeting scheduled of the FDA advisory committee that advises the FDA on vaccines. And the specific topic is the authorization of COVID vaccines. Now, they have said specifically, the FDA commissioner has said specifically that no specific application is going to be discussed. So it's um, as of now, there is no plan to discuss a specific vaccine that's going to be authorized from what they said. Now, the FDA has said in multiple settings, uh, written and verbal, that they will have an advisory committee meeting to review the safety and efficacy of, of a vaccine before anything is authorized. So they've made that commitment. So those pieces of data are they've said there's going to be advisory committee meeting before they authorize a vaccine. There is a vaccine advisory committee meeting scheduled for October 22nd. They're going to discuss the COVID vaccine in general. So that's one part of the puzzle. The other part of the puzzle is there's little snippets of what you call them rumor or news coming out about the idea of using data from trials overseas to authorize a therapy if the trials here are not finished. There's a vaccine out of the University of Oxford that is doing trials outside of the U.S., but hasn't, hasn't really advanced trials inside the U.S. And there's some talk about that one of the trial sites was stopped because the FDA is saying maybe we can use data from overseas. The other issue is that we've heard more and more just this opening about we would consider an emergency use authorization for the vaccine. So we keep hearing that and that we keep hearing that there is a push politically to have a vaccine before the election. So whether it happens or not, no one knows, but everything is aligned in terms of a low bar for an authorization, a vaccine advisory committee meeting, trials that are quite advanced. And I could argue, one could make the argument that it could fit the bar for an emergency use authorization. The stage is set that this could actually happen. Politically, now if I can put my unofficial pundit hat, and I'm not a pundit, but for the president to go up and announce that there's a vaccine does not require that it's a vaccine that everyone has access to or will take. So what some people have talked about is an emergency use authorization that is first very specific tailored population, a small group of individuals that allows the administration to say, look, we got a vaccine, but without having to deal with all the issues of well, is it really safe? Is the entire public going to get it? It will just be authorized for a small population. Those are many reasons to think that it's at least possible that after the October 22 vaccine committee FDA meeting, if the agenda is tweaked a little bit in the run-up to that meeting, such that specific and concrete vaccines are discussed rather than the issue in the abstract, that there could be, as a result, potentially of White House pressure, but maybe, I mean, let's not be totally cynical, maybe as a result of early findings from around the world that seem plausible, that there could be some kind of an announcement of an emergency use authorization with enough time before the election for that to affect people's minds. What do you see as the potential upsides or downsides of an announcement like that? 
Right. The whole point is we're in an emergency and a thousand people a day are dying. If there is something that can stop that, that is good. So the upside, if there is really good data from overseas and it just doesn't fulfill the requirements of a full approval in the FDA here, well, I mean, most people would agree that that should be authorized. That would require a full phase three trial that's completed where you give it to enough people and you have enough cases to say that there really is a reduction in the prevalence of COVID or the severity of COVID if you give people a vaccine. And the FDA has made specific guidelines on how much of an effect they want. They want at least a 50% effect, 50% fewer cases among those who are vaccinated versus non-vaccinated. So that's a clear upside. If there is a vaccine that works, we feel good that it works, well then let's get it available so people don't have to wait for all the red tape to happen. Then you, you, I guess it's a spectrum of things. So go down the spectrum a little bit. And while the phase three trials are not completed, but they're almost completed, there maybe is an effect, but there's not enough cases to know for sure, but there's no real safety issues. I can easily see an argument there being made that, well, we have data so far in the data, we don't have any big safety issues. We have the early trials and we have the phase three trials saying, yeah, there may be an effect. It may not reach statistical significance because there's not enough people, but it's, it's almost there. And then it goes all the way down how far you want to think about what the administration could say that would still fit the criteria for an emergency use authorization. Is it reasonable to say that the probability of a benefit outweighs the probability of a risk with some lesser kind of data? And it's possible. And it depends on which vaccine they're talking about, because some of them are new vaccines that have never been used before. Some of them are just variants of another vaccine. So the downsides are, uh, one is side effects. You do not want a vaccine to be authorized, people excited, and then all of a sudden people die or become paralyzed when they start taking the vaccine. That would be a disaster. The other issue is, let's say there's a vaccine where the preliminary data is positive, but it ends up being just a little effective. It maybe reduces the chance of having COVID by 20%. But there's still trials ongoing to test a vaccine that might be better. The problem is you're going to have people who want to get back to their lives and they're going to have a vaccine on the market. And the question is, are they going to take that vaccine and then not enroll in other trials that might get us a better vaccine? And then we'll never know, we'll never get to that better vaccine. That's one concern is that the randomized trials will not fully enroll and we end up authorizing a vaccine that's okay and not really getting those vaccines to market that are really, really good and maybe a little safer. What about the risk that politicization just engulfs the announcement? I think the thing that's most striking to me is, you know, we spent the first part of our conversation talking about just how bad it was that there's this politicization surrounding, I think your phrase was, I jotted it down, the politicization of the entire thing, the entire thing being, you know, the whole question of treatment of COVID. If the president announces an EUA for a vaccine in late October, I don't know how you avoid radical politicization. And I don't know how you avoid Democrats, maybe not Joe Biden, but certainly other Democrats saying, it's too soon, this isn't safe, you shouldn't do it. And then that really could create a circumstance where many, many people, like roughly half the people, have some deep skepticism about the vaccine. Can you imagine a scenario where the Democrats, or at least some Democrats, would go down that road? Yes. 
Yes. And that's the problem. And I've already seen it in politicization of other issues in public health. And it's not only what they say, it's how they say it and in what context they say it. A lot of the decisions that Democrats and those that lean Democrat have disagreed with, the criticism has been couched in a language that is about how the president is terrible, et cetera, et cetera. So the problem is, is that will definitely happen with the vaccine. And it will be things like, no one should take this vaccine. No one should trust Trump. The data are terrible. Trump has led us astray. The problem is, where is the nuance? Where is the truth going to come from? And that's what I meant before about the problem with 35 out of 100 thing from the head of the FDA about plasma. Where is the truth going to come from? I mean, what you've just described sounds great from the standpoint of Trump, especially if he's pulling closer in the polls, but is still down. And now, you know, imagine, if you will, being inside Joe Biden's strategy session as Donald Trump is calling this press conference and holding it. His advisors are going to be telling him, well, Mr. Biden, if you don't challenge this, it may hurt you in the vote in the next week. But if you do challenge it, if you do say it's too soon and then you're elected, then by the time whatever vaccine the president is talking about is actually available, because the vaccines themselves doesn't seem plausible would be available at the end of October. It would just be the announcement that was happening then. By the time the vaccines were actually being produced in sufficient quantities and distributed with sufficient efficiency to reach Americans, Joe Biden could be president. And then he would be in a disastrous position if he had first said that we shouldn't take the vaccine and then he were president and he wanted to hand out the vaccine. So you can imagine that strategy session being, a, frankly, a bit of a nightmare, too. So I, what you're describing is making me, with everything you say, I'm getting more and more concerned that this could actually happen. Uh, yeah, and I am not a political pundit, but I, like many people, think a lot about these things. But I, I have the same concern, and I think what will happen in October if there is an announcement like this it will inevitably be politicized and the vaccine is our way out and we just don't want to mess this up. We have messed up so much in the response to this pandemic. The vaccine is the way out. We do not want to mess that up. But yet to be able to be the president and stand up a week or two before your election and say, we from day one put in billions of dollars in warp speed. Look what we've done. We've authorized the vaccine for a small group that that obviously will bring a lot of benefits. Thank you, Walid, for genuinely powerful analysis. And thank you for your clarity and your even-handedness around these really challenging questions. I hope you'll come back and talk more with us if uh, indeed there is an October surprise. <laughs> it's a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, and I'd be happy to come back. And uh, hopefully the October surprise is a good one. Listening to Dr. Jalad describe what went wrong in the rollout of convalescent plasma therapy was pretty eye-opening. First of all, he pointed out that when it comes down to it, convalescent plasma therapy may actually be a good thing. He supported and said it was correct for the FDA to issue its emergency use authorization. At the same time, he didn't pull any punches in saying that it was astounding and unprecedented for the head of the FDA to make flatly false statements about the degree of efficacy of a treatment and then not fully back away subsequently from those claims. Yet for all the importance of these events, what most stunned me in my conversation with Walid was his 
very close to a prediction, or at least his alerting us to the possibility, that after the special October 22nd meeting of the FDA's Vaccines Committee, there could well be a presidential announcement of an emergency use authorization for a vaccine. Now, to be sure, we don't know whether that will happen. And while he did not say that he knew that it would. Instead, what we were doing was trying to pull together probabilistic evidence based on the incentives of the parties, based on what had been said and announced publicly, and based on what we think Trump would like to do if he were able. It's important to note that Waleed did not say that it would necessarily be a bad thing for the president to issue this emergency use authorization if indeed he did. That would all depend on what the data showed at the relevant time. We all want to get this vaccine to as many people as possible, even if in practice it seems extremely unlikely that vaccines would actually be available in October. Yet there is simultaneously a really significant risk that if a vaccine were rolled out too soon, it might crush public confidence in the FDA and eventually public confidence in the efficacy of a vaccine. And that too has potentially very serious public health effects. The upshot is that we should all be watching much more closely than I have been until this moment to figure out what the FDA is actually going to do at its committee's October 22nd meeting. And we should be watching the president's moves very carefully to see whether the White House thinks it has something to gain from an emergency use authorization then. At the same time, we'll all keep hoping that the data is good and that the vaccines work and that it is possible to get them to people as soon as possible. I make no secret of my desire to see Donald Trump out of office, but it's in the end much more important to save lives. Until the next time I speak to you, be careful, be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott, with mastering by Jason Gambrell and Martin Gonzalez. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. I also write a regular column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com podcasts. And one last thing. I just wrote a book called The Arab Winter, A Tragedy. I would be delighted if you checked it out. If you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. You can always let me know what you think on Twitter. My handle is Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you, and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 